1 Kings chapter 18, we begin with verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, that it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 41 from the reading we have just heard. In verse 41 we read these words, And Elijah said unto Ahab, Give thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. There is a sound of abundance of rain. Some might think it's strange that Elijah would utter these words to Ahab, especially the part where he tells him to get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. A.W. Pink is of the opinion that such is the hardness of Ahab's heart that Elijah could do no better than to appeal to his carnal appetite to celebrate the rain that was soon to come. I think there's a better explanation for Elijah's words to Ahab. 
Remember that the land had been suffering from drought and famine. There hadn't been any rain for three and a half years. Recall, if you will, that Ahab and Obadiah, that member of Ahab's court, had divided the land between them in order to search out grass in an attempt to try to keep the horses and mules alive. We read of that back in verse 5 of this chapter. Food was scarce. We know that as well from Elijah's time at the brook Cherith, where the ravens miraculously provided food for him, and from his time with the widow of Zarephath, where the widow was initially, you may remember, preparing what she thought would be the last meal for her and her son when Elijah came into her presence. She thought the end had arrived. This is it. This is the last meal. And then they would just wait to die. Now when food is scarce, it's used sparingly. It has to be preserved for as long a period as it can be stretched. What Elijah is saying to Ahab now in our text should be considered in the light of that context then of drought and famine. Basically, what Elijah is saying to Ahab is that the time had arrived when food would not be so scarce any longer. The rains would fall, the crops would be planted, the harvest could be brought in again. Get thee up, Elijah says to Ahab, eat and drink, for the time of scarcity would soon be over. There is a sound of abundance of rain. I'm reminded of a somewhat similar scene in the New Testament, found in Acts chapter 27. Similar in the sense that the situation was desperate. In that chapter, you find the Apostle Paul in the midst of a stormy sea on a boat with other prisoners that are being sent to Rome. Paul had warned them about the storm, but his warning went unheeded, and the seafaring group found themselves hopelessly lost at sea. In the midst of their abstinence from food, Paul shared with them how an angel of the Lord had stood by him and assured him that their lives would be spared. And in verse 33, in the verses that follow in Acts 27, we read, And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. Imagine that, being in a stormy sea, where the sun doesn't shine, you can't tell day from night for a period of 14 days in in, in which the situation is so perilous that I don't imagine anyone had much of an appetite for food. And then Paul tells them to take food and eat because the Lord had stood by him and assured him that they would all survive. I believe this is the kind of spirit... (coughs) 
that was displayed by Elijah when he called Ahab to get up and eat and drink. The awful scourge of drought and famine was about to be lifted by the grace of God. Now we should note in the narrative that at that particular time that Elijah said to Ahab, there is sound of abundance of rain. At the very time when Elijah spoke those words, there wasn't so much as a cloud in the sky. There wasn't any kind of indication that the drought was about to end. The ground was as hard and dusty as it had been for the previous weeks and months and years. The rain wouldn't come until a little later. It would take seven trips, as we read, on the part of Elijah's servant, scanning the horizon of the sea before that cloud would arise out of the sea the size of a man's hand. Verse 44 So when Elijah says there is sound of abundance of rain, he's not speaking literally. Literally, there would have been no such sound, but he's speaking prophetically. Or you could say he's speaking in anticipation of what would soon come to pass. And this anticipation of the Lord's gracious provision is what I want to focus on this morning. Drought and famine and rain in Scripture, you see, have their spiritual counterparts, as we'll see in the course of this study. And when we view the words of Elijah, spiritually speaking, and make the spiritual application to the day in which we find ourselves, it should stir our hearts to ask, can there be such a sound today of abundance of rain? Is it right for us to say that even in the midst of such spiritual famine and drought in our day, spiritually, we can anticipate a time near at hand when the Lord will pour forth the showers of blessing on our land? There's a hymn in our hymn book that is based on a verse of Scripture that's found in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 26. There shall be showers of blessing, it says in that verse. And as it turns out, that's the very name that's given to the hymn. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasoned refreshing sent from the Savior above. And the second stanza reads, There shall be showers of blessing, precious reviving again, over the hills and the valleys, sound of abundance of rain. Taken right from our text today. Can that be true? Can there be such showers of blessing? Should we be able to say that we, like Elijah, can hear the sound of abundance of rain? Like I said a moment ago, this is what I want to focus on this morning in the moments that remain, anticipating the sound of abundance of rain. That's my title. That's my theme. 
anticipating the sound of abundance of rain. And the question I want to raise and then endeavor to answer is simply this. What contributes to such a sound? What does it take on our part to say, yes, I can hear, spiritually speaking, that sound? Or, perhaps to be more precise, what contributes to the anticipation of revival blessing? Well, consider with me, first of all, how the promise of God contributes to that sound. The promise of God contributes to the sound of abundance of rain. Recall all the way back to the beginning of this 18th chapter of 1 Kings. In that opening verse, we find Elijah dwelling still with the widow of Zarephath. Indeed, his season with that, win- with that widow is described as being of many days, it says in verse 1. Many days indeed, I think it would be fair to say that he spent several months and perhaps even a couple of years with that widow. We don't really know how to divide the time between Elijah at the brook Cherith and Elijah with uh, the widow of Zarephath. But I think if you divided them evenly, you would say that he was with that widow for a good number of months uh, and perhaps even a couple of years. But then the appointed time came, and so we read in the first verse of chapter 18, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and then underscore what it says next, and I will send rain upon the earth. That was the word given to Elijah at the beginning of the chapter, that the Lord would send rain upon the earth. You see in this word from the Lord what the Lord's purpose was in sending Elijah to meet up with Ahab. His ultimate purpose would be to send the rain. It wasn't simply to send the fire upon the sacrifice, and expose the false prophets of Baal, that was very necessary, but we should keep in mind that while the fire falling comes to us as a climax in the chapter, that was not the final aim. The fire falling from heaven was only a means to an end, a means to a gracious end, that end being the abundance of rain. Now let me at this point in our study provide you with the scriptural warrant for making the connection between the literal showers and the spiritual showers. Some of you, I think, are familiar with the account of Duncan Campbell, who was associated with the Isle of Lewis revival, a revival that took place on that island off the coast of Scotland, Back in the early 1950s, it used to be back in the day, and I guess this kind of dates myself, that when I was a member at Faith Free Presbyterian in Greenville, the church at that time used to hand out cassette tapes of Duncan Campbell's account of the revival in the Isle of Lewis. 
And we did that very specifically so that people would come to know what we meant when we spoke of revival. Some people have different ideas about what that term means. Some people think that when you have an evangelistic campaign, uh, it's a revival service. Well, actually, it's not. Uh, you may hope and pray that it will lead to revival, but revival is not the same as an evangelistic service. I, I recommend Duncan Campbell's account to you. You can find it on Sermon Audio. Uh, type in the name Duncan Campbell, and the account is given there. And someone has gone through great pains to actually clean up that recording. It used to be uh, a very uh, terrible quality recording. And when you add to that kind of the strong Welsh accent of Duncan Campbell, it was a recording you had to strain yourself to listen to, but was well worth listening to. Well, much easier to listen to now, and I commend it to you. There's a verse in Scripture that was viewed as a key verse to that wonderful season of blessing. And that verse is found in Isaiah from the chapter that we read earlier today. Listen again to verses 1 through 3 in Isaiah 44. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. Do you see how Isaiah himself, directed by the Spirit of the Lord, makes the spiritual application of the floods upon the dry ground. The thirst being described here amounts to spiritual thirst, and floods upon the dry ground amounts to an outpouring of God's Spirit upon those that are thirsty as well as upon their seed. Oh, if ever there was a covenant promise that ought to be pleaded by parents before the Lord for our children, it is this promise. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, my blessings upon thine offspring. Boy, that's one mom and dad you do well to memorize and take to heart and plead before the Lord often. Lord, honor the promise. Pour out thy spirit upon my seed, upon mine offspring. We can cross-reference this passage in Isaiah to another that's found in chapter 41, verses 17 and 18, where we read, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
the problem that we face in our day, I'm afraid, could be identified as a problem of a lack of spiritual thirst. I'm afraid that in our day of affluence and ease, we're more likely today to resemble the children of Israel in the wilderness who constantly long to return to Egypt rather than to go forward into the promised land. Oh, that the Lord would indeed help us to order our priorities aright, that we may hunger and thirst for the Lord himself to move and not allow ourselves to be complacent with the present state of things. This passage in Isaiah 44 was earnestly pleaded by those on the Isle of Lewis who, who longed for God to move. In the accounts of those prayer meetings that led to an outpouring of God's Spirit, you find great fervency and you find very intense soul-searching. Listen to this account that Duncan Campbell gives of his first meeting in a church on the Isle of Lewis. This was only meant to be an informal greeting of sorts. Duncan Campbell had just arrived by boat. There were those that were on the pier to greet him. They said, we know you must be hungry. We'll get you to your supper just as soon as we can. But if you don't mind, would you come by the church first and just give a word of greeting and a brief word to the people that are gathered there. Duncan Campbell notes in that account that he never would get that supper until maybe 3 a.m. the next morning. Listen to his account now, and I'm quoting from him. He says, I preached in the church to a congregation of about 300, and I would say a good meeting, a wonderful sense of God, something that I hadn't known since the 1921 movement, but nothing really happened. I pronounced the benediction, and I'm walking down the aisle when this young man came to me and said, nothing is broken out tonight, but God is hovering over us. He's hovering over us, and leave it be, and he'll break through any moment. Well, I must be perfectly honest, I didn't feel anything. But you see, here is a man much nearer to God than I was. Oh, he knew the secrets. We're moving down the aisle, and the congregation is moving out. They're all out now except this man and myself. He lifted his two hands and started to pray. God, you made a promise to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, and you're not doing it. He prayed prayed and prayed again until he fell again onto the floor in a trance. And then in an earlier account, Duncan Campbell pleads, don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me to explain this trance. He goes on to note that it wasn't so unusual in times of revival. The similar thing could be traced in uh, uh, the Great Awakening, for example. He continues, he's lying there, I'm standing beside him for about five minutes. And then the doors of the church opened, and the session clerk came in. Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Revival has broken out. 
Will you come to the door and see the crowd that's here? Eleven o'clock, mark you. Eleven o'clock at night. I went to the door, and there must have been a congregation of between six and seven hundred people gathered around the church. This dear man stood at the door and suggested that we might sing a song. They gave out a psalm. When Zion's bondage God turned back, as men that dreamed were we. Then filled with laughter was our mouth, our tongue with melody. They sang and they sang and they sang, and in the midst of it I could hear the cry of the penitent. I could hear men crying to God for mercy, and I turned to the elder and said, I think we had better open the doors again and let them in. Within a matter of minutes, the church was crowded at a quarter to twelve that night. There wasn't any promotion to this. What was it that drew that crowd to that church on that occasion? You can only attribute it to the Holy Spirit. You go on to read, after that meeting, when that meeting was dismissed and there was such a powerful movement of God and the cry of the penitent were heard and men and women and boys and girls were calling on Christ for salvation, calling on Christ for mercy. And after that meeting ended, Duncan Campbell is met at the door of the church again by a man that says, will you come down to the police station with me? There must be a crowd of some 60 or 70 people that are in a field across from the police station and they're under deep conviction of sin and the reason they went to the police station is because they knew that a Christian could be found there. Would you come there and preach the gospel to them, Mr. Campbell? Uh, in which he did. He was only scheduled to be a couple of weeks on that island. And as he tells the story, he ended up there for three years because of the way the Lord had moved. Here is an account then of hungering and thirsting and pleading and praying and challenging God with his own word. That whole thing began, you may recall, if you've heard the account, with a couple of elderly ladies, one of whom was practically blind, who could discern the spiritual times in which they lived, had a tremendous fear on their hearts, especially for the young people. What is this going to mean for the young people if things continue the way they are? And so these two ladies began to pray. And then they invited their minister to join them, which he did. And those meetings grew. They grew in length. They grew in fervency. They grew in number. Until at last, the sound of abundance of rain was realized. It reminds me a little bit of a scene we'll see later in our studies of Elijah. When we come to that time when Elijah is taken to heaven in a fiery chariot and his mantle is left to his successor, Elisha, and Elisha will come to the Jordan River and roll up the mantle and strike the river with it and say, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? 
and that river would part for him. I preached from that text many years ago on the theme of challenging God with his own promise. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? So that's the first contributing factor to the sound of abundance of rain, the promise of God and that promise earnestly pleaded before God's throne of grace. This again is why we meet on Wednesdays for times in prayer. Oh, Lord, send revival. We've been seeking it a long time. It hasn't come yet. But still, we must continue to plead with God as he tests our faith. May we take the matter to heart and be found pleading such promises when we pray privately or as families or as a church. Well, let's consider next the power of God. We focused up to this point on the promise of God as a contributing factor. Secondly, I want you to consider how the power of God contributes to the sound of abundance of rain. There's a lot we could focus on under this heading. Certainly the power of God was manifested when the fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the altar and licked up the water that filled the trench around the altar. Oh, what a display of power. But the thing I want you to note about this powerful manifestation of God's presence is that nothing could hold it back once the set hour had come. The nation, remember the context, the context, the spiritual context, so important in this chapter, the nation had been dominated by false religion, you recall. Baal worship prevailed, and the surviving prophets of the Lord had to be hidden in caves. But when the set hour came, the prophets of Baal could not hold back the power of God. Their numbers notwithstanding, their extreme devotion and their mutilating themselves could not keep back the power of God once Elijah repaired the altar and called on God. Nor could the duration and the severity of the famine hold back the power of God. I've heard it suggested by some preachers, usually of the dispensational variety, that our nation is beyond hope. The forces of sin and wickedness are too firmly entrenched in our nation, and they've been, they've been entrenched for so long a time. We're beyond hope in terms of the Lord sending revival. Well, I'm reminded of another scene in Israel's history. This scene taking place in the days of Elisha, Elijah's successor. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we have the account of the city of Samaria coming under siege by the Syrians. We're told in verse 25 that there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it, until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. 
Things went from bad to worse in the city of Samaria until the king of Israel became so bitter against Elisha that he determined to execute him. When the king's executioners came to the door where Elisha was staying in order to apprehend him, he announced to them that by that time the next day there would be such bountiful provision in the city that a measure of fine flour would sell for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. You can read of that in 2 Kings chapter 7, in verse 1. We read in the skeptical, we read in that chapter, the skeptical reaction of one of the king's emissaries in verse 2, where he says, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? He sounds a lot like the skeptics of our day, doesn't he? It's too far gone. We're, we're beyond hope. If the Lord opened windows in heaven and poured down blessing, it just uh, it wouldn't fly. It, it's too late. We're too far gone. I'll leave it with you to read the account in Second Kings chapter 7 of how it came to pass exactly as Elisha said it would, that a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel, the blessing came that quickly and that fully. I preached from that passage many years ago and made the point that the length of the famine and the severity of the famine were no barriers to the power of God. And in that sermon, I raised the question, how close are we to revival today? And the answer to the question would be, we are but a word away. Once the Lord, you see, gives the word, nothing else matters. Doesn't matter how long the spiritual famine has been, how severe the spiritual famine has been, how strong the forces of wickedness and apostasy have become. When the Lord gives the word, Nothing can hold back the blessing. And that's been the case, you know, throughout church history. And the bleakness of the times in which we live only become another contributing factor to the sound of abundance of rain. In Psalm 119 and verse 126, the psalmist prays, and we would do well to make his prayer our own when he says, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Let me read that again. Psalm 119, verse 126. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now, I'm pretty sure I don't need to convince anyone here this morning that we live in a day when the powers of darkness seem to reign through our civil government, and they are very much engaged and have, to a large degree, succeeded in making void God's law. Now, there's a couple of ways we can deal with that kind of situation. We can fret about it, 
until we torture ourselves into despair and heave sighs of hopelessness, or we can make the psalmist's plea our own and see in this verse that it's time for the Lord to work, and in so seeing such a time, we can anticipate the sound of abundance of rain, the wickedness around us, the making void God's law, really ought to minister to us in such a way that we are able to say and say with conviction, God's going to move. God will not put up with this unendingly. Now granted, the fire will have to fall first, to be sure. I can remember years ago when Dr. Cairns preached out of 1 Kings 17 to 19 on the ministry of Elijah. He made a point of emphasis that the fire must fall and there must be a purging of the land, but then there can follow not just the sound, but the reality of abundance of rain. So what are the contributing factors to the abundance of rain, to the sound of abundance of rain, There's the promise of God, and there's the power of God, and then finally, there's the prostration of God's people. That contributes to the sound of abundance of rain, the prostration of God's people. I just mentioned that the fire of God must fall before the showers of blessing come. You will recall that at the beginning of this chapter, the people were divided in their opinion as to who God really is. How long halt ye between two opinions? Elijah asked them in verse 21. If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Recall also that the people answered him not a word. They had nothing to say in reply to the challenge that Elijah had just set before them. Basically, their silence was a confession of their ignorance. They honestly didn't know and couldn't tell who was God and who wasn't God. I've no doubt there would have been many in that crowd that would have been of the opinion that neither one was God. The whole thing is just fabricated. Their hearts were so hard toward anything spiritual that they wouldn't have had the capacity to know either way whether the Lord or Baal be God. All that changed, however, when Elijah repaired the broken-down altar, set the wood in order, laid the bullock on the wood, and then called for the whole thing to be doused in what added up to 12 barrels of water. And then he prayed in verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And the Lord answered prayer, and the fire fell, 
And we read in verse 39, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. One might wonder why the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal was a contest determined by fire. When rain was what the people needed, why not suggest to the crowd that the God that answers by rain, let him be God? And the answer is, of course, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. They had only stepped up to the starting line, so to speak, in their knowledge of God. But you do note their posture. When the fire fell, they fell on their faces. And that's what I mean by the prostration of the people of God. There was great need for them to prostrate themselves before the Lord and being clothed now in deep humility and coming under conviction of sin, they confess that the Lord is God. Now if the showers of blessing be regarded spiritually as assurance of mercy and assurance of salvation and acceptance, then it certainly follows that the fire falling from heaven produced the effect of conviction of sin. And that's a mark, you know, of any revival that God sends. Again, I refer you back to that account of the Isle of Lewis revival. I think of one instance in particular where a wife had been praying for her husband and he'd come under conviction of sin. And when one of the ministers arrived at her house and inquired about her husband, she said to the minister, he's out back in the barn praying. Come, you can see and hear him for yourself. And the minister did go. And he heard that man praying along these lines, Lord, I just can't help but feel that hell is too good for me. Oh, what conviction of sin is wrought. And we can draw the spiritual counterpart there to the fire falling. This is what happens when the Lord moves in power and might leading to the showers of blessing. Assurance is preceded by conviction of sin and conviction of the truth of God. It was certainly that way on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. After Peter preached Christ to them, you might say, spiritually speaking, that there was a sense in which the fire fell. So we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Now when they heard this, that is, the preaching of Christ coming from Peter. When they heard that, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the disciples, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's where the fire of God will take you. This must always be the starting point. And the showers of blessing would correspond to Peter's word in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
And a couple of verses later in Acts 2, we see the effect of the spiritual showers. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Oh, you could say the fire of conviction fell, and the showers of blessing of assurance of mercy in Christ followed. And so I wonder this morning, can you affirm in our day what Elijah affirmed in his day? That there is a sound of abundance of rain. There's a hymn in our hymn book, hymn 571, that goes like this. Our service for God has been barren and dry, and barren it shall remain until we are blessed with the fire from on high and sound of abundance of rain. The prophets of pride and the priests of desire are calling and cutting in vain. The halting are waiting for witness of fire and sound of abundance of rain. The altars of God that our sins have destroyed, we must build with the things that remain and prove to the world that no promise is void by the sound of abundance of rain. And the refrain to the stanzas goes like this, There is sound of abundance of rain. There is sound of abundance of rain. To God we draw near, and by faith we can hear the sound of abundance of rain. Can you hear that sound this morning? Oh, don't be discouraged. It's a sound that is heard by faith. It's not a sound that is heard by the circumstances around you. Indeed, the circumstances around you contribute to that sound when you recognize that when they've made void God's law, it is time for God to move. May we be found then pleading the promises recognizing God's power, and may we know in increasing measure the fear of the Lord so that our confidence may grow to the point where we do indeed hear the sound of abundance of rain by anticipating that the Lord is going to move with power and might. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray that we won't be discouraged even by what we see by sight. For we know, O oh Lord, that when the powers of wickedness seem to have full sway, Thy word truly indicates to us that it is time then for thee to work. And, O oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt indeed work. Work with power and might. Start it in our own hearts, dear Lord. 
May we know more of the fear of God and the love of Christ. May we be convinced in the depth of our souls that he is all-powerful and that he's given promises and that he is true to those promises. And, O oh Lord, may we indeed be found then pleading those promises from faith as we hear the sound of abundance of rain. So, Lord, hear our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.